Well, we've gathered here uh, this afternoon to worship the Lord, and part of our worship is having the opportunity and the privilege to once again open up His Word. So if you have um, a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to the uh, very first book of the New Testament and the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, that is the Gospel of Matthew. And um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to consider with you um, this afternoon just the first 17 verses. Now, what I was hoping to do today is uh, to deal with the first uh, 17 verses in the morning service and then in this afternoon service follow up and look at verses 18 through 25 regarding the very simple and I would call relatively unadorned story of the birth of Jesus Christ. But we're going to shift that over to next week and just for now look at the first 17 uh, verses. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, Uh, And also, as you can see here before on the overhead, we have a whole list of names, and what we're considering uh, this afternoon is something maybe that you've never heard a sermon on, or maybe you have, but you've forgotten the details. We're going to be considering together the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus Christ, which usually, if you grew up with the Bible and you had a dad or a mom read to you when you were a kid the genealogy or the family trees of the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, you kind of maybe let out a yawn, right? And you kind of checked out because you just had one name listed after another after another. But I think as we dig into this passage, I think we're going to find this is indeed a very fascinating passage to consider. So please join me if you would. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 begins like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now here's a list of names. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, 
All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What we call historical writing here. The genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, which um, I don't know about you, but I've never heard this really spoken by kids in a Christmas service. And I don't know if you grew up with Christmas services, but a lot of people grew up with Christmas services where little kids are involved and they usually tell the Christmas story at some point. From Luke chapter 1 usually and Matthew chapter 2 or the later part of Matthew chapter 1, like we're going to consider next week. And those, those, are, those are warm passages and those are passages that we are naturally drawn into because they're, they're, they're stories involving characters and dialogue and then you find this passage here, and it's just, it's just a genealogy. It's just filled with a number of names, one following after another after another. And it makes you wonder, if Christmas time is all about Jesus, and Christmas time is all about reflections on the story of Jesus' conception and, 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 and birth, and if, if, if we give so much airtime, so to speak, in talking about Jesus and the conception and birth of Jesus Christ during this Christmas time, it seems strange, doesn't it, that you have someone like a man named Matthew, a follower of Jesus, who the very first thing that he brings about regarding the conception and birth of Jesus Christ is basically a whole list of names, a genealogy, a family tree, and it just doesn't seem to, I, I think it just doesn't seem to really, in a sense, after read all those names, just kind of draw us in and, and create some, some kind of warm fuzzies in our heart. But you have to ask yourself the question, why would Matthew do that? And we have to understand that, that Matthew, as a follower of Jesus, was a Jew. And when you consider the primary audience of the Gospel of Matthew, it's to the Jewish people. So what Matthew is basically doing, before he gets actually into all of what happened in the conception and birth of Jesus Christ, when he lays out the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus Christ with all these names, what he's basically saying to his Jewish audience and to us as well in our modern society is, yes, indeed, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. For all of history up to this point and through the generations is moving us forward and forward. It's like a drum roll that's growing louder and louder and louder until it ultimately culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. But when Jesus Christ came into the world, many people were wondering, hmm, but is he the long-awaited Messiah whom we've been waiting for? Because when you look at various events leading up to the coming of Jesus, you have to remember that our ancestors, God's people, indeed, were, were living under oppression. For instance, under the oppression of Babylon, under the oppression of the country of Medo-Persia, and then Greece. And then now, when Jesus is born into the world, they're under the subjugation and uh, oppression of the Roman Empire. And because of all this oppression, the Jews were looking forward to the coming of a Messiah who would be king and would establish his kingdom and who would rule over their oppressors. Oh, how they look forward to that time when their oppressors would be vanquished and all of peace and shalom would come into the world. And so when Jesus came on the scene, they're wondering, is this the one? Is this the king who's come to bring his kingdom? And Matthew says, yeah, 
Take a look at the genealogy. Take a look at the family tree. We know he was going to come from Abraham. We know he's going to come through David and the line of David. And David was king. And we know that David's greater son, a greater king than David, would be the Messiah. And Matthew's saying, through this genealogy, as we follow the names, it all goes from generation to generation to generation with the coming of Jesus into the world. He's the one. He's the one. Now, kids, I want you to think about something. When we, when we consider the, the genealogy, what we call the family tree of Jesus Christ, there's, there's, there's a number of things I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to notice all the names here. Now, I dare say not one of you is counting all these names as we're moving along. Now, I'm not going to ask you to give a response as I normally do in our catechetical series in the afternoons, but I want you to think to yourself right now, how many names do you think that I read here? How many? 42. 42 names. That's a lot of names. And secondly, when you look at all of these names and you look at family tree of Jesus Christ, what you notice is that there's some well-known names and not so well-known names. So if you grew up with this book, let's say you grew up in a Christian family, you, you are pretty familiar with a number of these names, some of the more well-known names, like what? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, Ruth, these kinds of names you've probably heard before. But there's a number of names here that I am sure that most of us have no clue who these people were, like Hezron, or Ram, or Aminadab, or Nashon, and Salmon. I mean, what, what do you know about these people? I mean, there's no really much background, if any, in the Bible about these individuals. But what is perhaps most interesting about the whole list of names here in the family tree of Jesus Christ is what I call the scandal of Christmas. What I call skeletons in the closet. People of kind of, well, shadowy, questionable background. Do you know your own family tree? How far back can you go in your own family tree? And have you, have you even researched it? I think, I think some of us would probably say, you know, I've researched my family tree, and we could go back a number of years. I, I, I know that um, I can cite, and I have at home research, and I have it all written out where I can go back all the way maybe to the 1600s, 1500s, maybe the 1400s, and... Isn't it interesting, if you look at your, only, uh, your own family tree, and you go back just a couple of generations, don't we all have some individuals, well, probably, in our family tree, if we go back a few generations that are, well, if you know them, or heard stories about them, are somewhat questionable, shadowy figures, people we talk about in hushed tones, like that particular uncle, or that particular aunt, or, or some things. Um, for those of us who are a bit older, do you remember your parents talking to you about certain figures in your family tree, and, and your parents didn't share these things with you when you were younger, but when you got older, they felt that you were old enough to know about that uncle, or that aunt, or that opa, or the oma, the grandma, or grandmother who, you know, grandpa actually did this. Or grandma, when she got angry, actually said this, right? Same thing in Jesus' family tree. And I bring that out because usually people are shocked when people come across the family tree of Jesus Christ and think, oh, Jesus. 
Sinless Jesus. And then we go into this family tree and we find these shadowy, these questionable figures. These dirty figures. My point being this. And we're going to look at this genealogy now. When you take a look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, one of the benefits of doing so is that we begin to understand why Jesus actually needed to come into the world and why he's worthy of our worship and our celebration during this Christmas season. So let's take a look at this, this genealogy. We're not going to be able to cover all of it, but, but, but some of it, some of the names. Okay, How does it begin? It begins like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how it begins. And then from that, we have a list of all these names and all these people, people who, listen carefully to this, people who are really a lot, actually, like you and me. People have a good side, bad side, dark side, light side, moral side, and relatively, at times, immoral side, shameful side. Let me give you a few examples. Abraham. Abraham, a significant figure. The Bible says that he is the father of all believers. Well, what do we know about Abraham? A lot could be said about Abraham, but the main thing with Abraham is that we know that at a certain point in his life, Abraham was living in spiritual darkness. That is till God came to him and God entered into what we call a covenant with him. A covenant is a bond of friendship and love and peace. And Abraham was not looking for God, but God went actually looking for Abraham. That's why we call God's covenant with Abraham a covenant of grace. It's a gracious covenant. Because Abraham was not so deserved at that point, but God enters into this bond of friendship and love with him. And as part of this bond, this friendship, just like a marriage, God gave Abraham a number of incredible promises. What were those promises? He promised him a land, the Abraham and his descendants' land, and he promised them, Abraham and his wife Sarah, he promised them descendants as many as the stars of the sky, as sands of the seashore, and one of the greatest descendants, the greatest descendant of Abraham and Sarah would be Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. And when Abraham received these promises, this was an astounding thing because Abraham and Sarah were old at this time. Abraham was 75 years old when God came and covenanted with him well beyond the ability as far as his wife Sarah was concerned, who was close in age to Abraham, to even remotely have kids. But God says, I'm going to give you descendants. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So Abraham had his good side. But then there was also Abraham who, at the behest of his wife Sarah, when the, the child and the descendants of Abraham did not materialize right away, it was Sarah who said to Abraham, well, why don't you have relations with our Egyptian maidservant Hagar so that we can have a child through her? Because we don't have children of our own. So Hagar ends up becoming a surrogate. And Abraham, rather than saying to Sarah, no, I'm married to you, I can't do that, he obeys his wife Sarah, has relationship with Hagar, and out comes a child. His name is Ishmael. Abraham, full of light, but full of darkness. And there were other things that Abraham did that were part of his darkness. We won't get into that. Let's move on with a few other names. How about uh, Jacob? What do we know about Jacob? You read in the first book of the Bible that Jacob was a liar, he was a deceiver, and he was a thief. 
Remember, he is the one who deceptively stole the birthright that was given for the, to the firstborn Esau. Or what do you know about Judah? Judah had some good traits. Judah was a so-called good man, kind of a moral man in some ways, and yet it was Judah who slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who he mistook as a prostitute, married outside of the faith, and was also behind with his brothers, um, getting rid of their brother Joseph, selling him to a band of marauders named Ishmaelites. Judah. How about moving on to some other significant names that many of us are familiar with? How about David? David was a good man. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. So we elevate David, and yet it was same David who fell from grace, so to speak, by, by involving himself in an adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba, and not only that, but also being involved in a plot to take out her husband Uriah, who was killed in battle, so that this whole adulterous affair with Bathsheba would be covered up. Or how about Solomon? Kids, you remember Solomon? Solomon, when he was young, do you remember? He was, a, he was a young man of prayer, and he prayed to God when he realized that he was going to take over the throne of his father, David. He prayed for wisdom. He didn't pray for power or for wealth or the death of his enemies. He prayed for wisdom so that he'd be a righteous ruler of God's people. And yet, when he got older, it was Solomon who had all these concubines that eventually led him to the pagan gods of Chemish, Ashtoreth, and Molech. Here's a man who started with at great spiritual heights and fell to great spiritual depths. One other one, Manasseh. Know anything about Manasseh? The Bible says that he was king at once of God's people. He became king when he was very, very young. And the Bible says that he performed more evil than all those kings who came before him, even going so far as to offer his child as a sacrifice to pagan gods. He's involved in child sacrifice, his own child. Yeah, that's right. It's all in Jesus' family tree. And that's just the guys. That's just the men. How about the women? Ruth was not even really a bona fide Israelite. She was born in Moab, grew up worshiping pagan gods, and then she attached himself, herself to the covenant people. Or how about Rahab? Remember Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute. And then there's Bathsheba. She was an adulteress. I mean, on and on it goes. Which, in a strange way, do you ever have this, if, if you're a Bible reader and you read through the book of Genesis particular, and then and you, 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 you come into contact with some of these people, and then you read the rest of the Old Testament, and you realize, wow, in, in, in a strange sense, it kind of gives you and me hope, doesn't it? I mean, if you have a heart that's sensitive to the ways of God, and then you look at your life sometimes, and don't we go to those depths every once in a while where we just go, how in the world could God ever be patient with me? How could he ever love me? Because we're all filled with light and we're all filled with darkness, heights and depths. And sometimes when you read people out of Jesus' family tree, you go, if God could tarry with them, if God could be patient with them, and if God could keep reaching out to them to draw them back to himself, cannot God do that with, with you and me? Hypocrites that we are, two-faced that we are, double-minded, double-hearted that we are, yeah, you know, the fact of the matter is when we look at the people here and then we look at ourselves, we, we all say, you know what? We're all kind of a bunch of hypocrites. 
Some people will say, you know, especially during the Christmas season, you invite them to a Christian uh, worship service, and they go, oh, I don't go to church. Why don't you go to church? Right? And the old excuse is, well, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And our response has to be, well, you're right in that. We all are a bunch of hypocrites. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need him. So, when we look at the family tree of Jesus Christ, what do we find? You know what we find? Let's be direct. You find deceit, lies, theft, prostitution, adultery, murder, idolatry, occult practices, human sacrifice. I mean, these are some of the things that send people to jail. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, these are a number of things that we find right here in our own hearts, right? Isn't that what Jesus teaches us? Can you put Matthew 15 on? Next passage. Look what Jesus says. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. So what's in the heart? Hmm? What's in the heart? What's in our hearts? For out of our hearts come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are all what defile a person. We may not act out on these things, but I tell you what, they're right in here, and they're right in here. That's what Jesus says, right? So, so really, you know, the, the, the moral of the story basically is this, and this is what we think about this Christmas season. My friends, we are all in need. Need of what? We're all in need of somebody to rescue us from this situation, all in need of a deliverer. All in need of someone who could, could help us deal with this and take this all away and bring us in a good relationship with God. question is, who is that? And Matthew, in this passage, says, well, let me tell you. I'll tell you who that is. Okay? Take a look at verse 16. So we have all of these names. As I said, we can't cover all of them, but we go through these names, and all these names culminate in verse 16, where we read this. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, can you, can you put that back up there, verse uh, 16? Go back, not forward. There you go. Um, look at, uh, I don't know, we don't have the... Okay, there it is. Very good. Yeah, verse 16. Okay. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So, so what we have is we have a flow in this passion, moving forward, 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 culminating, concluding in the mention of the Christ, Christos, meaning Messiah. Okay, now, this is, a, this is a highly significant verse, and, and you're not going to be able to discover just how significant it is just from our English text. So I want to bring out a couple of things from the original language, and what I need right now from you is for about the next five to ten minutes to really pay close attention, put on your thinking caps, because, because, because this is something significant that I'm, I'm going to bring out here. So I'm going to read it again. Jacob was the father of Joseph, Joseph being the husband of Mary. Now, just one quick thing is, Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, right? You have Joseph and Mary, right? And then you have Jesus. So Joseph is the legal father of Jesus, but he's not the biological father of Jesus, okay? This is a very, very important point, because if he's the biological father of Jesus, then Jesus is no different than you and me, 
right? Okay. So we read here that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now notice, of whom Jesus was born, who's called Christ. Now if you take a look closely at verse 16, the word whom there is a pronoun. And in the original language, it comes in a feminine form. So what that's really telling us is that Mary is, and I suppose you would say, well, yeah, no kidding, but it's important that we understand is that Mary is the biological mother of Jesus. She's the biological mother of Jesus. What that tells us is that as the mother of Jesus, it was Jesus who was conceived in the womb of Mary, and he came forth into this world from Mary. Mary's his biological mother, which basically tells us that Jesus is just like you and me. Kids, look up here, okay? You see me. Hands. Jesus had hands like these. Jesus had a face. Jesus had a body. Jesus had blood. Jesus had flesh. Jesus had a heart. Jesus had lungs. Jesus had all of these things. Jesus was just like you and me. And he looked like you and me. Every way like us, except what? Without sin. Jesus never broke a commandment. Jesus never violated the standards of God. Jesus was always obedient to his Father, even to the point of death. But the point is this. Jesus is like us, and he identifies with you and me. I think of John 1, verse 14, where it says this, and the word in reference to Jesus became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So my point is that Jesus was not simply a spirit who came down to earth. Jesus was not like just an angel who came down to earth, but Jesus was eternal God who took on human flesh like you and me and identified very closely with us, just taking on our nature. Okay, that's number one. But there's something else here. Not only was Jesus human, but we also have to understand that Jesus was divine. Now, one more thing. Take a look at verse 16 again. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus, now notice these words, was born, who was called the Christ. The words was born, technically, in the original language, come in not what we call the active voice, and stick with me here, not in the active voice, but the passive voice. So let me explain. The words was born here in reference to Christ in verse 16 are the same words that are used elsewhere in this family tree of Jesus Christ. And you see it over and over again. For instance, if you have your Bibles, take a look at verse 2 where it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and then Jacob the father of Judah, and so on. Now, literally, that's, that's the English text, and it kind of clarifies for us the family tree of Jesus Christ. You know, Abraham being the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. But in the original language, it reads like this. Abraham gave birth to Isaac, Isaac gave birth to Jacob, Jacob gave birth to Judah, or some old translations have the word, for some of you who are older, remember the word begat, right? Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah, and so on. Now here's the thing, we know, as much as strangely in the news today talks about certain kinds of men being able to give birth, I don't even follow it, it's ridiculous, but anyway, we know that males, God didn't create males to be able to give birth. He gave women the ability to give birth. 
So when we read this, it says Abraham gave birth to Isaac. We know that Abraham didn't actually give birth to Isaac, but Abraham was the one who provided the seed for his wife to conceive and give birth. So in that sense, in that sense, Abraham gave birth to Isaac, and that's how the term is used here. Now, when the words Abraham gave birth to Isaac and Isaac gave birth to Jacob, the voice there in the original language is in the active sense. In other words, the, the, the focus then is on human involvement or human action. God causing his wife, or um, Abraham causing his wife to conceive, and Isaac causing his wife to conceive, and so on. But when it comes to Mary here, when it says Jesus of Mary was born, there it's not used in the active sense, focusing on human involvement in terms of Mary actually conceiving and giving birth to Jesus, but there it's in the passive voice. In other words, it's something that is done to Mary. The idea being is that the life that was created in Mary was not of Joseph, but it was, she was passive in the sense it came from the Holy Spirit. And isn't that actually what is clarified in more detail in Luke chapter 1, verse 35? We'll read this. Can you put up that text from Luke? There we go. Now notice here. And the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the Most High shall overshadow you. That's divine activity. That's not coming from Joseph. That's coming from the Holy Spirit. Divine activity. And then the child to be born of you, Mary, because it's Mary who gave birth, is the human activity involved, and he shall be called holy, the Son of God. So what we find at the end of this family tree of Jesus Christ is this beautiful, glorious, and also mysterious truth. We find human activity, divine activity. We see Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We see Jesus both as God and also man. That is the mystery and the profundity and the beauty that we celebrate this Christmas season. Now, I kind of took you through a lot in the last five to ten minutes, but it's all in order to underscore the mystery and the beauty of Jesus and this Christmas season. There's a beautiful quote by a well-known theologian named J.I. Packer, and it goes like this. He says, it's here at the first Christmas that the profoundest and unfathomable depths of the Christian faith lie. The Word, that is, Jesus became flesh. God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. Incarnation means just the enfleshing of the very Son of God. This is why throughout all the centuries since the time of Christ, Christians have made such a big deal about Christmas because it was a very unique event in the eternal Son of God coming down to this earth and taking on human flesh like you and I have. But one more thing before we end, and that is this. We can say, okay, 
interesting, you know, the mystery, the profundity of it all, but so what? Why did the eternal Son of God take on human flesh? Why did he do that? And at this point, I want to draw your attention to what we call a catechetical statement from one of our confessional standards. It goes back all the way to 1563. And ask this question, why did Jesus actually have to be human? And why did he actually have to be God? I want to draw your attention. Take a look at it if you would. A teaching moment. Why must Jesus be true and righteous man? Now, follow closely with me here. Jesus needed to be true man. You say, we can, we can replace the word true here for genuine. In other words, when Jesus came to this earth, he just didn't appear to be human, but he was actually like you and me, human. He must be true man because the justice of God requires that the human nature which sin has to pay for sin. That's why Jesus didn't come down as just an angel or a spirit or some animal form, but he came in human form. Why is that? Because you and I are humans and we are sinned. And so the justice of God and the wisdom of God required that the human nature which sin must make satisfaction for that sin. That's why Jesus needed to be human. But notice also this, Jesus was not only a genuine human, but Jesus was also a righteous one, that is a sinless one. Why must he also be a righteous man or a sinless man? And the answer is because he who is a sinner cannot pay for other sinners. So Jesus is human, true human, genuine human, but also sinless human. So in many ways, my friends, Jesus is just like you and me, but in a very big way he's not. Because you and I violate the standards of God and we grieve the heart of God all the time, don't we? Jesus never did. And that's what qualifies himself to be our Savior. Okay, one other thing. Why must Jesus also be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the weight of God's wrath and secure for us and restore us to righteousness in life. Sure, Jesus became like you and I without sin, but he was more than human. He was divine. He was God. Why was that necessary? And here's something many people don't understand, but God is so holy and so sinless himself that his judgment goes out upon sin. God, God cannot simply turn a blind eye to sin and all our imperfections. He is whole, so holy and so just that he has to give sin what is its due. And what is it? It is judgment, wrath, and death. This is not something very nice to preach, but it's true and it must be said. But Jesus takes Jesus is, not just takes on, he is fully, not just human, but he also God. Because only God himself in his divinity can withstand the full weight and the pressure of God's wrath upon our sin and thus save it from it. Now why do I take time to go through this catechetical statement? It's to simply demonstrate this one fundamental fact. There is no other individual among all major world religions who is as qualified as Jesus to deal with the sin problem and restore us to God so that we might have a living relationship, which is the very thing that we celebrate this Christmas season. So I leave you with this. You and I can take a look at this family tree and, and look at it from an, an outside objective sense. We take a look at it and we study it all and go, oh, that's interesting. It all leads up to Jesus. But we have to do more than that. 
We really have to enter into the very individuals and the characters here and realize that you and I are not just, you know, an audience or bystanders, people on the side looking in, discovering, oh yeah, it all leads to Jesus. We have to see ourselves in this family tree. Our names may not be mentioned here, but the sins of the individuals here and the struggles of the individuals here, I tell you what, are all ours. And please don't look at this and say, well, you know, I, I, I know I'm not perfect, but, but I haven't been engaged in some of the things that the people have been engaged here. But the fact of the matter is, yes, we have. Whether it be in our actions, or whether it be in our imaginations, or in every one of our hearts. We are these individuals in our genetic and our spiritual makeup. And what this Advent season and what the service allows us to do is to own up to that, not run away from it, not sweep things under a rug. But what this time allows us to do is to recognize and confess really who we are. We're part of the human race and we're part of the fallen, dirty, shadowy, questionable human race. And we are all in need this afternoon of this kind of unique and qualified individual known as Jesus Christ who has come into the world to bring us grace, to bring us forgiveness, and to bring us mercy that is as deep as the ocean and as shoreless as eternity. And our calling this Christmas season is not just to be warmed by the Christmas story, but do like the wise men did years ago who bent over and bowed the knee and worshipped the Christ. May that be for us this Christmas season. May God bless us in this. And for now, before we sing, let's have a word of prayer together. Let's sing together. Heavenly Father, we have left our homes this afternoon amidst snow and wind and cold to be able to have this opportunity, oh God, to be drawn once again to the uniqueness and the beauty of the Christ child who was born into this world. Lord Jesus, we give you all the praise. And we pray that this Christmas season, we may know you in a full and in a believing way. And we pray that we may find our ultimate union and our satisfaction and our joy and our life in you. Oh Lord, grant that we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.